0: You think i'm late <laughs> you all think i'm late well i'm not late and i'm gonna stay right here and fight for this lost cause even if this room gets filled with lies like these and the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place somebody will listen to me welcome to great ideas we're broadcast on wkxl available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. Whether or not you're part of the generation that still thinks of Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington when you think of the Senate filibuster, most Americans, if they think about it at all, associate the filibuster with standing up for lost and often noble causes, one senator on her or his feet, exercising a constitutional right, and fighting to stand up for a principle. But what if I told you that the filibuster isn't in the Constitution at all? Some scholars call it an historical accident, an unintended consequence. In fact, today's filibuster isn't even what we had a few decades ago. Many experts argue that what we do have has metastasized into something that ruins the function of Congress, allows a small minority to run roughshod over the majority, and stops things that the American people need and want. But there are still many who argue that even with its flaws, the filibuster retains a critical purpose and that getting rid of it could be dangerous and even destructive. To help us sort through what's going on and more important, what to do about it, we are very privileged to have one of the leading scholars in America on Congress, elections, and government. He's Norman Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. His list of contributions to our thinking about American government is too long to list. Seriously, it would be the whole show, but you've probably seen him on C-SPAN, CBS, CNN, Fox News Channel, MSNBC, NPR, or PBS NewsHour, among many other outlets. We're recording this on my birthday and my nerdy present to myself is getting to hear the wisdom of Norm Ornstein. Norm, welcome. I hope you get a better birthday
1: present than that, Matt, from family and others, but uh, we'll People go with what we you know,
0: This is about as good as it gets for me. So okay. I'm, I, I'm really thrilled to have you. Thanks and happy birthday. Thank you, thank you. It's widely accepted that voters don't care about process and the filibuster is the quintessential process issue. So why does it matter? Why should our listening audience care about the filibuster? If you care about outcomes of policy
1: that affect our daily lives, that affect the future and health of our democracy, you should care about it. Now that doesn't mean that busy people who uh, don't spend much of their time nerding in uh, or walking in, as we do on a lot of these ins and outs, should know all of the details about Rule 22, much less the other rules in the House or Senate rulebook. But it's important to understand that our ability to act in areas ranging from voting rights and democracy reform to uh, getting our infrastructure repaired to getting universal background checks on guns and doing something about gun violence, to action on other important issues that face us on a daily basis, including more of the action that we'll need to take to deal with uh, COVID or other pandemics down the road. All of those things can be blocked, have been blocked by the misuse of a rule that as you said at the outset was an accident to begin with doesn't reflect some cherished belief in minority rights or the desire or need to get uh, broad bipartisan cooperation on things, but has really become
0: an issue of mass obstruction. Ten years ago, you and some colleagues uh, at the Brookings Brookings Institution, led by Sarah Binder, I believe, wrote a letter to the Senate laying out the history of how we ended up with a filibuster at all, and you just alluded to it uh, a little bit, how did we end up with a filibuster? Was it really an accident of history? Indeed it was, and uh, here we get a little wonky
1: as well. Um, Most uh, parliamentary bodies, including Congress, uh, including the House of Representatives, have a procedure called moving the previous question you have a motion on the previous question, a majority says yes, and that means you stop the debate, you move to action or to a vote. The House and Senate both had this motion in their initial rules back at the beginning of our republic. In 1805, then Vice President Aaron Burr, who uh, is not known by all that many in history, at least wasn't until the musical Hamilton,
0: Right, and this uh, is not the cool Leslie Odom Jr. version of Aaron Burr. This is the historical version who is not so cool.
1: Not so cool. And of course, in the aftermath of killing uh, Alexander Hamilton, but as the vice president about to leave the body, and remember in our constitution, the vice president of the United States is the president of the Senate. So he gave a kind of farewell address to the Senate and said, you know, as I leave, one of the things I've reflected on Your rule book is filled with some things that you don't really need. They're redundant. They're unnecessary. And i just like to recommend to you that you streamline your rules. One of the things that he included there was to remove the motion on the previous question. They didn't think about it. Uh, It wasn't of any significance to them. They did it. For decades, nothing happened. They could go on, and most members agreed, all right, we're going to vote on this. We'll go ahead and we'll act. But then it became clear to some that if you don't have an ability to stop debate with the majority, you can keep it going, not because you need a certain number to overcome it, but if any individual took the floor and kept to the floor or then turned it over to another and another a kind of tag team, you could block something indefinitely. So what happens? We get to 1917 we're on the verge of entering the Great War, the First World War. Five senators decide they don't want to get the Navy prepared, so we would go into a war, if we did, in a disastrous place. Uh, They took the floor individually for hour after hour. You know, they sort of get the group together and say, all right, you're gonna speak for three hours, then you'll turn it over to me and I'll speak for three hours. And in between I'll eat, I'll get a little rest, uh, I'll relieve myself. And for weeks, they blocked action on something that President uh, Woodrow Wilson and many others thought was absolutely vital. Wilson called them a little group of willful men. And eventually they broke that filibuster and created a new rule. That was rule 22. And that said, doesn't matter if an individual takes the floor or if a small group do, if two thirds of the members of the Senate who are present and voting say no more, they will bring it to closure. They called it cloture, French word. And that was the beginning of the modern filibuster rule. Now, one other thing that uh, listeners might be interested in where does that term come from? It actually is from a Dutch word for freebooter, which meant a pirate. So it's almost like the filibuster is a bunch of pirates hijacking the ship of state. Uh, and you know, it's sort of interesting in some ways to know the origin of some of these terms. Uh, but for many decades, we went with that uh, rule two-thirds of those present in voting, and while Jimmy Stewart's uh, famous uh, filibuster on the floor of the Senate um, captivated public attention at the time, it was kind of a uh, license taken uh, to uh, show dramatically uh, the nature of politics didn't really reflect the way the rule worked. And of course, for most older Americans, we remember vividly the filibusters that took place in the 1950s and 1960s. The main use of the filibuster through most of the 20th century after the rule took place was by segregationists blocking action on civil rights bills and voting rights bills. I will tell you that I once had a conversation with the late Senator Strom Thurmond, one of the leading forces here. And I asked him about his famous 23 hour and 16 minute, I think it was, or maybe it was even 24 hours where he went straight on the floor to dramatize his belief that we shouldn't do anything to provide civil rights or voting rights to African-Americans. And he said to me, you know, my opponents kept coming up on the floor and offering me orange juice and uh, other liquids, trying to get me to a point where I couldn't speak anymore because I'd have to go off uh, to the restroom. Uh, And I didn't do that. And uh, he alluded to the possibility that he had a catheter uh, for that 24 hour period, but whatever it was, it was simply a dramatization. Now at that point, the segregationists mostly Southern Democrats, wanted to demonstrate to their voters back home, they were all white voters, look at what I'll do, the lengths at which I'll go to protect your way of life and our way of life. But back then, we would have these sessions for weeks on end where the Senate would come to a halt and they would go around the clock. And we had pictures of senators sleeping on cots outside the Senate floor And the idea of course was that you would try to break the filibuster by making them go to great lengths and have sacrifice to do it. But you would also dramatize for the nation the nature of the issue. And ultimately that dramatization brought along enough senators, Democrats and Republicans. And here are some of the heroes were people like Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader in the Senate who said, we can't support anything like this anymore. And we got the Civil Rights Act of 1958, followed by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and then the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, after that, we saw filibusters here and there, sometimes led by liberals. Um, Energy policy, I remember one, led by uh, Democrat James Abaresk of South Dakota against uh, President Jimmy Carter's policies, Um, often by conservatives not always along party lines uh, until uh, more recently. Now, I'll mention one other element here, Matt, which is we did get a rules change. And while it was largely ignored at the time, it had great consequence that we can talk about a little bit further on. The Senate has a catch-22 built into its rules. So it was a two-thirds requirement to... Do anything, uh, overcome to, and that included to change the rules. Well, remember, the Senate has one third of its members up for election every two years. They're staggered terms. In the House, everybody's up every two years. So after an election and starting on January 3rd, the House of Representatives has nobody there. They have to swear everybody in. There are no rules because the rules died at the end of that last Congress. And by a majority, they create a new set of rules. Mostly it's the same old rules with a few twists here and there, tweaks. The Senate doesn't die. Two thirds of its members are still there all the way through. So it's considered to be a continuing body and the rules remain in place. And that meant if you wanted to change any of the rules, including amending that filibuster rule, you'd have to overcome a filibuster and take two thirds of those present and voting to be able to do it. But in 1975, the then vice president who presided over the Senate, Nelson Rockefeller, shook up the place and shocked them at the beginning of the Congress when he ruled, sitting in the uh, presiding officer's chair, that you could change the rules by a simple majority. And that created uh, havoc. And the Senate said, time out, they sat down, both parties, and they worked out a new compromise, which was to move in this cloture to end debate from two-thirds of those present and voting to three-fifths of the Senate. Now, most of the commentary at the time said, here's what they did. They lowered the bar to break a filibuster and get to a vote. And that's still in the lore now. I've seen in a column in the New York Times, in uh, one done by PolitiFact and many other places. They say the last time the rules for filibusters on legislation were changed, they lowered the bar from two thirds to three fifths. But it didn't work that way. They moved from a present and voting standard to a full flat out three fifths. What's the difference? So let's say you have three fifths of those present and voting and you're going round the clock and the minority that's blocking action gets tired. Some of them go home and only 80 of the 100 senators show up. Then you only need 48 votes, three fifths of the 80 to break the filibuster and move on. But if it's a firm standard, no matter what, you need 60. And what it did was it changed the burden of the filibuster from the minority. The whole idea was a minority that feels so intensely about something that they will go to the mattresses literally to block action and to highlight for the public why they feel the way they do. You move to the burden being entirely on the majority. And just to give you one little story, when Al Franken was a Senator, early on, he asked one, said to one of his Republican colleagues, Uh, going away for the weekend, we'll see you on Monday. And his colleagues said, no, I'm not gonna be there. I don't have to be there because all that's gonna happen is a cloture vote and you have to be there because it's all about your getting 60 votes, not about anything that we do. So when the burden shifted to the majority, the opening was there to exploit that for bad purposes and that's just what Mitch McConnell as the Republican leader of the Senate did during the Obama years. Before that, it was still the case that it was used very infrequently, a filibuster, and generally the parties tried to work something out. They found ways to get together to pass policies because both parties saw that there was a common understanding of what the problems were facing the nation. And if they didn't have a common understanding of the best policies to take, they could still work something out and compromise. What McConnell did was to move us beyond that and see that if you tried to filibuster everything, little bills, big bills, nominations for courts, nominations for executive agencies, you could take an enormous amount of time in the Senate and the majority would get tied up in knots. They'd have to do all kinds of things, vote after vote after vote, meaningless vote, where they needed to muster 60. And ultimately, it made it impossible to take action on many big things because the floor time in the Senate was such a valuable property and it was being used. And you could block things you didn't like or delegitimize uh, things that you couldn't ultimately block. And of course, that worked very well for them. It worked in 2009 and 2010. They couldn't block in the end the Affordable Care Act, although they could distort it and make it much harder to implement because it would have to be done through the one process in the Senate that for legislation can be done by a simple majority called reconciliation, budget measure. But that meant that some of the elements you'd want in a bill couldn't be put into it. And they had to water it down because they had to get every single one of the 60 that they had very briefly of the Democrats in the Senate, all the Republicans opposed. And that's where we are today. It is a measure that's been used to block almost everything because the minority doesn't have to do anything other than say, I will deny unanimous consent to move forward on a bill, and you're going to have to get 60 votes to move forward.
0: To set up the ideas that you presented recently in an op-ed in the Washington Post, suggesting that there could be a way forward on reforming the filibuster, and why your ideas might make more sense than Democrats simply going to the mattresses, either literally or or, or figuratively, in a Godfather sense, you imply in your op-ed that the Democrats find themselves in a clever little knot. Republicans are currently in the midst of passing state-level laws to restrict voting access that, in theory, will hurt Democrats' chances in 2022 and beyond. So right now, Democrats may have their one moment to pass democracy reform and put a halt to those efforts. But with Republicans dead set against that bill, they can't do it without changing the filibuster, and they can't do that without persuading two senators, but for shorthand, we'll say Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia you suggest if they push too hard on Senator Manchin, they run the risk of losing him to the Republican Party and merely handing the chamber back to Republican control even faster. And let's not forget, we're not even four years removed from West Virginia Governor Jim Justice doing just that and flipping parties. So what is sort of the organizing thought behind your op-ed and your proposals here? Are you trying to suggest a path forward that, doesn't accept the status quo but stays away from these kinds of Defcon one scenarios.
1: Exactly so. And let's just for a moment step back a little bit. And if, if you look at some of the threats to the right to vote that we're seeing out there, uh, in Florida right now, they're trying to ban completely the use of drop boxes for vote by mail while they cut down the number of places where you can drop off a vote by mail ballot, and of course, we know the post office is deeply broken. I was just involved in a situation where um, a, a check that was sent out, uh, a, a charitable contribution, um, in early January, still has not been received in Miami, Florida in March. And that's not untypical now. So if you don't want to rely on the mails and ballots received after election day, in most states are not counted to begin with. And what you want to do is make it extremely difficult for people to vote by mail because what you saw in 2020 was it was Democrats who were voting by mail. You do things like that. In Arizona, the legislature just passed a bill that said if you don't have a vote by mail, that's actually put in the mailbox by the third day before the election, even if it arrives by election day, it won't be counted. So there are multiple ways in which they're trying to restrict votes. So one can understand the urgency behind a democracy measure that protects the right to vote, but it will be filibustered. Mike Lee, the Republican from Utah, said of this bill to uh, protect voting rights that it's, it came from hell. Uh, that's the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing. But what do you do? Well, there are 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. One of the things I wrote in the op-ed was to remind people that we had a situation just like this in 2001, and it was President George W. Bush, And the Republicans in Congress and those in the White House were furious with moderate to liberal Republican Jim Jeffords of Vermont, and they decided they were going to punish him over and over. One of the things that they did was, this is a big dairy state, and they had a big celebration at the White House for the dairy farmer of the year, and they blocked him from attending the ceremony. And what happened? Jim Jeffords said, I've had enough, I'm gonna become an independent and I will caucus with the Democrats. And that shifted the majority. So if Democrats get so furious with Joe Manchin of West Virginia, that they're gonna find ways to punish him, they run the risk of turning this into majority leader, uh, Mitch McConnell instead of majority leader Chuck Schumer Lose complete control of the agenda and the ability to do anything, turn investigations over to the likes of Ron Johnson. And obviously, that would be uh, catastrophic for them. I was just going to say Joe Manchin is dead set against simply removing the 60 vote hurdle and going to a 51 vote hurdle, meaning a majority could act. So the question then becomes what can you do to give yourself a fighting chance of getting? Many measures that you want, that the president wants, that most Democrats and actually a majority of Americans want uh, without putting yourself into a box with the inability to do anything.
0: You say in the op ed you recently wrote in the Washington Post that there's a goal that seems to unite Democrats who are not so sure about getting rid of the filibuster outright, Uh, senators like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, and They seem to feel that there is some merit to the filibuster, that it allows for debate of ideas, uh, putting forward uh, objections, alternative thoughts on legislation. And after making that argument, the minority party has some ability to push for compromises that incorporate some of their ideas. With that in mind, you suggest three potential compromises, middle paths that might fit that function, and allow for some change to the filibuster. So what are your ideas for fixing the filibuster? So I'll start with the first
1: one, which is something that I've uh, promoted actually for a decade or or more. Um, And that is to try and flip the numbers so that the burden is on the minority and not the majority. And before I get to that, let me mention one other uh, sort of story here. Uh, back when the Affordable Care Act was being debated in the Senate. The Democrats had exactly 60 senators, so in theory they had the numbers to break the filibuster and move on uh, to get us uh, the health care reform. Uh, but Robert Byrd of West Virginia, a longtime leader, 50-plus years in the Senate, was almost literally on his deathbed. And to break that filibuster, they had to take him on a gurney, into a wheelchair to be wheeled onto the Senate floor to provide that 60th vote. And Byrd, close to the end, shook his fist at the Republicans in the body and shouted out as best he could shout, shame, shame, shame. That's not the way the Senate was supposed to work. But that's what happens when you have that burden on the majority. Uh, So I thought, why not instead of having 60 required to end debate, have 41 required to continue debate. And that way, the minority at any given moment, the vote scheduled would have to come up with 41 members. And you could have votes at three in the morning or five in the morning, You could schedule a session for Saturday or Sunday, or even for Monday morning or Friday afternoon. That would discomfort them enough that, at least at minimum, it wouldn't be used as a weapon of mass obstruction with every bill, little bills, big bills. It would end up being reserved for the most major measures. Um, I continue to believe that that's an elegant kind of option, and that it would appeal to a Joe Manchin who in fact has found some appeal in it and has talked about this and said that there should be some pain attached for the minority. Now that's one way of providing that pain. And I frankly would pair it with another idea that I didn't get into very much that has been promoted for some time by Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon which is the talking filibuster. It's the Jimmy Stewart idea. You're going to have to maintain the floor continuously. As soon as there's a break, even for a nanosecond, that's the end of it. We can go to a vote. Um, Now, if you do just that, I'm not at all convinced that it works. Um, Why? Because you can uh, cede the floor to another member. And if you've got as they now have 50, but let's say you even have 45 uh, minority members in the Senate who are joining in a partisan filibuster. You know, you can allocate the time. You'll go for an hour. I'll go for an hour. And you can keep that going without any real cost. But what if you had the uh, requirement that you needed 41 to vote to continue it, and they'd have to maintain the floor during that time, and they would have to debate the issue with what's called Germaneness. In other words, you'd have to talk about it. At one point during a faux filibuster going on for uh, at length, uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas used his time on the floor to read Green Eggs and Ham, uh, the Dr. Seuss book. Uh, no reading of Green Eggs and Ham. You'd have to talk about why you are blocking a, you uh, uh, universal background check bill supported by 94% of Americans. You'd have to talk about why you are eager to suppress the votes of African-Americans and other minorities. And with that, you would probably have a reasonably good chance at some point of having them give in or not be able to provide those 41 votes. Maybe some are sick uh, or they just won't be around. And remember, You know, if we're looking at just the contemporary Senate, you've got uh, at least three senators who are 86 and 87, another uh, who's just about 80, and a lot of others who probably aren't going to relish the thought of sleeping on lumpy cots outside the Senate floor for days on end and being roused for a 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. vote uh, to do so. So that's the first option. The second I,
0: option. Oh, go ahead, please. No, I was about to say, I was. I, I found your second option sort of equally compelling. And, and you already alluded to it a little bit earlier that there was this change in 1975 that had yeah. deeper consequences than it appeared on the surface. So please go ahead. Second option is just to return to that
1: present voting standard. And with the number being three-fifths, that uh, you've got to have three-fifths of those senators present and voting you go around the clock. And again, if the minority doesn't show up, the bar gets reduced significantly. Uh, 20 don't show up, you only need 48 votes. Uh, So there are a lot of different ways in which you can uh, sort of make this work. I would prefer the 41 standard because uh, it still means more pain for the minority. It means more you have to put yourself out more to make this happen, it makes it harder to just say, all right, I'm going to filibuster and try and soak up more time on the floor. Um, And then the third option is just to reduce the number again. And you can reduce it again with a present voting standard from three-fifths to 55 senators. Now, I want to mention one other option that I didn't put into that op-ed that further down the road, might be workable, and that actually would be more powerful. And that is something that was promoted for a long time by a longtime opponent of the filibuster going back decades, uh, the former senator from Iowa, Tom Harkin. And Tom Harkin's idea was, all right, we need to give the minority time to debate time to take to the floor and explain why they don't want something to happen that a majority supports. So we'll give them time. We'll start with a level of 60 votes required to break it for a couple of weeks. And then that bar will be lowered to 57 and then to 54 before it gets to 51. Uh, So ultimately the majority is gonna have the ability to act, but there's gonna be plenty of time devoted to the minority. Now, if we take one of these steps and include within it something that Joe Manchin has said is really important to him and which I fully well understand, which is you need to have a more open process for debate and deliberation and amendments. So let's take the example of uh, a, an infrastructure bill, something that in the past has garnered broad, bipartisan support. Um, And now we know that that's one of the next things on the agenda for uh, Democrats. Bring up an infrastructure package that includes universal high-speed broadband in rural areas as well as urban areas. It includes repairing the crumbling Uh, sewer lines and water lines, the bridges and dams and waterways uh, in the nation and the roadways that are long overdue. Uh, Bring it up, but make sure that you have robust debate in the committees that deal with the different elements of this, with some ability for all members to offer amendments. Then you bring it to the floor and you schedule a robust debate with amendments allowed And if they then filibuster it, that tells you that we're not talking about simply a minority that is blocked from playing a role, but that is simply obstructing. And then maybe you'll have the ability to get some of these changes in place.
0: You know, that brings up an interesting point. There have been two areas of pushback to filibuster reform. One, I'd say more minor, and one more major. So on the first one, and I think you were just alluding to this, it's been suggested by some that there should be a predicate first. There should be some kind of evidence laid out of obstruction, of pure obstruction before making a change to the filibuster. In fact, you cited in your op-ed in the post um, that the progressive no excuses pack said that Senators Manchin and cinema stand in the way of progress by abetting Republican efforts to shrink their own party's pandemic relief and climate and economic investment plans. But that does ring at least a little hollow on the heels of the COVID rescue bill, the 1.9 trillion bill that many analysts feel is one of the most progressive pieces of legislation we've seen in decades. So what do you make of this notion that Democrats need to at least go through the effort of putting forward, as Senator Dick Durbin suggested, some bills with bipartisan appeal first and giving Republicans the opportunity to act in good faith.
1: I'm all for that. Um, Understanding that you don't want to delay action for long uh, for a couple of reasons. One, these voter suppression measures are being passed by many state legislatures, that will be signed by governors, uh, once they're baked in, are going to be harder to overcome with a national uh, voting rights bill. And the national bill affects federal elections, uh, but ultimately, states almost have to conform to that uh, uh, to deal with their own state level elections, because Congress has written into the Constitution the ability to regulate the time, manner, and place of elections. But if you don't do that until 2022, you've probably made it too late to do anything about the 2022 elections. The second part of it is if you wait too long, we know the way the cycle works in a Congress. The second year, your members get increasingly nervous about casting difficult votes that may hurt them in the election coming up. And so you don't want to put these tricky votes off too long. But if you took a couple of months and brought up some of these measures like infrastructure that have had broad bipartisan support in the past, even things like the universal background checks uh, bill, some criminal justice reform, and they obstruct those, you've got some pretty strong evidence that we need change in the system. Uh, now, you know, the other part of this that I would mention, Matt, is. I found it really interesting to look at the way the COVID Relief uh, and Recovery uh, Act worked. It was done, as we know, under this one process that can be done by a majority vote, reconciliation. Usually there's one of those allowed in a year and it's been used not just for the Affordable Care Act in the past, but for example, for the Bush tax cuts in 2001 and 2003 and for the ginormous tax cut done with Trump in 2017. It's become a vehicle for making some things happen. There's some real limits in what you can do. It has to be budget-related. That's why the minimum wage was taken out. It didn't meet that standard. You can't increase the debt or deficit beyond a 10-year period, which is why we see some of these provisions in the tax bill going to bite a lot of Americans now because that huge Trump tax bill to meet that standard now has increased taxes on working and middle-class people starting this year uh, to accommodate uh, the requirements of, of that act. But you could look at this reconciliation package as the best test of whether a rule can force bipartisan cooperation. So here we had a big bill moving forward that where it was clear, pretty clear from the beginning that Democrats had the 50 votes to pass it on their own, but Joe Biden made it clear he would prefer to do it with more than 60 votes. And so it was an invitation for Republicans to come to the table. And coming to the table was basically, look, if you can provide 10 votes, we'll make changes will reduce the number significantly. We'll make some substantive changes, maybe altering the formula for people getting checks, maybe reducing the numbers uh, in the aid going to state and local governments, given the evidence that they've actually brought in more revenue than they thought they would. The number of changes that would meet Republicans' uh, demand. Uh, how do you do that? Well, here's a thought exercise. They're going to move forward with a $1.9 trillion package. If you want to join and really have an impact here, you're going to come in with your own alternative, probably around $1.4 trillion or $1.5 trillion, so that you can settle at $1.7, meaning you're cutting by $200 billion, and you'll get some of the substantive changes you want the Republicans came in with a $600 billion package, one third, less than one third, which was not serious. And while they talked, nothing happened. And in the end, they got none of the concessions that they could have gotten if they were in fact willing to compromise. That was a sign to me that we're headed very much down the same path that we saw in 2009, 10, in 2013, 14. And it's a Republican game plan that worked very well for them. They won uh, more seats in the House in 2010 than they had in a hundred years. And they won the Senate in 2014. And it was (laughs) a game plan of in unison against everything, block whatever you can, illegitimize what you can't. And if that's what we're gonna see, it makes a need for changing the rules uh, even more of an imperative. Before we go, I want to make one last please please do as well. Uh, this is celebrated as the importance of the minority, not having tyranny of the majority in our political system. But what's important to realize is put the filibuster issue aside. We have a political system that's stacked in favor of the majority and minority and against the majority over and over. In the electoral college, where there's far more power given to small states, the ratio of population between California and Wyoming now is over 70 to one. And Wyoming's voters in the presidential election have many times the force of California's voters look at the Senate. Right now, just about a third of Americans elect more than two-thirds of the Senate. Within a few years, 30% of Americans will elect 70 senators. In the COVID relief bill that just passed, with 50 votes, and the tiebreaker cast by the vice president, those 50 Democrats represent 41 million more people than the 50 Republicans who voted against. So there's minority rule in the Senate as it is. There's minority rule in the Electoral College. When you put together the way the House is set up with partisan gerrymandering, minorities in states like Florida and Pennsylvania and Illinois elect vast majorities of their members of Congress. So. We don't need the filibuster to protect the minority here. We have a lot of ways. What we need is more ability to enable a majority to act, especially when it's an overwhelming majority in an area where there's a clear national need.
0: Well, I think that's, a, that's about as eloquent a point to end the discussion on as I could think of and I really, again, wanna just thank you for, for running down all of this. In, in just the 30 seconds we have left, would it be right to say that if we were to enact the reforms that, that you suggest here, it, it might not solve all the problems, but at the very least we'd get a little bit closer to the expression of what people vote for in a democracy getting represented in their senators, in their, in their representative bodies?
1: I, I think that's exactly right. And the term that I would use is enacting some of these reforms gives a fighting chance to enabling action by the Senate in important policy areas supported by a majority, a majority of those in Congress and a majority in the country. It's not going to make it perfect. There's nothing that will make it perfect, but it's going to be a lot better than what we have now where uh, it takes nothing to block action, uh, even in an urgent priority that is supported by a
0: majority. Norman Ornstein, Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks so much. My pleasure,